0: and a very warm welcome to morning worship. And as always, an extra special welcome to members of our family and friends joining us from all across the country and around the world. As you know, our minister Katrina is on leave this week. So we are very grateful to our friend, Graham Mikkel-John from the Scottish Baptist College for leading us in worship this morning. Thank you, Graham. And we're looking forward to hearing from you. Along with Graham this morning, we'll also hear the voices of Emma and Ken. And our musicians this morning are Paul, Yang Yang, Leo and Ellie. And very shortly, Benjamin and Bardia and their family will be lighting our candle. And we're all invited to do the same if we would like to. Just a wee reminder for the trustees that there will be a short trustees meeting immediately after this service so please stay in the main room after the breakout rooms have closed. Then at 7pm this evening, our worship will be led by the Reverend Roger Stark. Katrina will be back next Sunday morning at 11am, and she will also be leading evening worship at 7pm. But now it's over to Benjamin and Bardia to light our candle. As we gather
1: for worship, let us join together to become the body of Christ. Christ is a light that lights our way. May we glimpse Christ light this way.
2: Good morning. It's uh, really good to be with you again this morning. Um, Let me begin with a few words from Psalm 100. as a time to gather our thoughts and focus our minds. So reading from Psalm 100, shout with joy to the Lord all the earth, worship the Lord with gladness, come before him singing with joy, acknowledge that the Lord is God, he made us and we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture, enter his gates with thanksgiving, go into his courts with praise, give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, his unfailing love continues forever, and his faithfulness continues to each generation. Of course, we might not be singing together in quite the normal sense of the words. And I think that um, shouting in public, even for joy, is still frowned upon at the moment. But it doesn't stop us from coming before God and acknowledging that he made us and we are his. What a comfort and reassurance that is this morning. And so it is with that in mind that we continue through our service this morning. Let us pray together. Lord and God, creator of the universe, you made the world in beauty and restore all things in glory through the victory of Jesus Christ. We pray that wherever your image is still disfigured by poverty, sickness, selfishness, war and greed, the new creation in Jesus Christ may appear in justice, love and peace to the glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, we know the power of redemption and you stand alongside us in the brokenness of our time. As we move through every sorrow and trial of this life, uphold us with knowledge that in your glorious presence we will share in your resurrection, redeemed and restored to the fullness of life. Lord and God, long ago, faithful women proclaimed the good news of Jesus' resurrection and the world was changed forever. Teach us to keep faith with them that our witness may be as bold, our love as deep, and our faith as true. Amen.
3: We pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses Morning comes from Luke 24, verses 36 to 43. Jesus appears to the disciples. While the disciples were still talking about what had happened on the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened thinking they had seen a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and at my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see me. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence.
2: Well, people of a certain age and demographic will probably be aware that Taylor Swift has re-recorded her back catalogue of music to sidestep an ownership issue. That's kind of backstory. Um, But what it means is that many people, again, of a certain age and demographic are having a nostalgia trip, re-listening to a decade or so of Taylor Swift music. As such, uh, my wife has had Taylor Swift playing around our house this past week and she'll take some joy in knowing that it's wormed its way into my head and now into my talk for today. One of Taylor Swift's more well-known songs is a duet with Ed Sheeran called Everything Has Changed. The song includes the line, all I know since yesterday is everything has changed. Of course, for Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran, this song is a love story but it made me wonder a little more about that sentiment that everything has changed. Neither in the song nor really in life do we often mean that everything has changed. In fact, most of the time when we say everything has changed, we really mean something more like most of life has stayed the same, but a significant part has changed. But that doesn't really make for a good lyric, nor does it often communicate the gravity of such a change. So why do I dive deep into these lyrics of Taylor Swift? Well, we've just passed through the celebration of Easter, and it's safe to say that the resurrection is one of those everything has changed moments. But in fact, in some ways true to form, most things didn't change. The disciples still woke up the next day and even returned to fishing. They were found eating breakfast. People were still walking the road to Emmaus to return home much of life continued unaltered, and yet everything had changed. Today, I hope to explore the continuity and discontinuity of these post-resurrection stories. And I want to do it through three lenses. The continuity and discontinuity of Christ's life in the post-resurrection narratives. The continuity and discontinuity of the created world as exemplified in the resurrection. And finally, the continuity and discontinuity of God's big story in light of the resurrection. Actually this morning, my hunch is that I'll give you more questions and semi-coherent thoughts rather than leaving you with a solid takeaway. But I hope that in the musings, you'll find some space to reflect and find your your own place in the post-resurrection story that still continues today. Beginning with my first lens, I often wonder about the strange anomalies we see when Jesus encounters his friends post-resurrection. There seems to be this sense of non-recognition followed by a clear recognition. Whether it's Mary in the garden, the disciples as they gathered in an upper room, or the travelers on the way back to Emmaus, there's no straightforward recognition of Jesus post-resurrection. Of course, we might say there are perfectly simple explanations. Mary would not have been expecting to see Jesus and may not have been fully cognizant through her grief. The disciples may have been in shock at the sudden and unexpected appearance of a figure in their midst. And the travelers, we're not sure, but they may not have been well acquainted with what Jesus looked like close up. But however we try to explain it, there's just no getting away from the sense that there is some discontinuity between the person they knew as Jesus and the post-resurrection Christ. So with that in the back of our minds, it's notable that when they did recognise Jesus, it came from a reminder or a connection to their shared life pre-crucifixion. For Mary, it was her name spoken in a familiar voice. For the disciples, it was seeing Jesus's hands and eating together like they'd done many times before. And for the travelers, it was the common practice of breaking and sharing bread. And here's where I maybe take a bit of a leap. It strikes me that the identification of Jesus in the post-resurrection stories comes by way of these past connections he had with others. And I think it's the same for us. What makes me, me, and what makes you, you? is in part due to the life we lived and how you know me and how I know you is to do with our shared experiences. It's an often quoted description of the gospels to say that they are passion narratives with an extended introduction. By that, it's meant that Jesus' death and resurrection is the focal event with the rest of the gospel being preamble. But as I was reminded this week, these introductions are just as important as the passion narratives because without them, the cross and the resurrection just don't make as much sense. Everything we think about Jesus' death and resurrection is informed by the life he lived. For example, the injustice of Jesus' arrest and the trial informs how we interpret the significance of his death and resurrection. The story of Jesus' life goes hand in hand with the events of the cross. And I think that should help us see the significance of our own stories. If we are found in Christ, we therefore participate in God's story and inevitably our lives tell the story of God to those around us. Jesus' post-resurrection life didn't ignore his pre-cross life. Instead, the most powerful moments of recognition come from the simple acts of connection. Perhaps it's a challenge to our lives that they should be filled with such connections as we live into and live out God's story, the gentle words that we speak as comfort, the meals we share together where we share our doubts and our hopes, and the paths we travel together as fellow pilgrims trying to make sense of life. Although it might seem like everything had changed when Jesus came out from the tomb, there was in fact much that remained. And I think in one way, the most precious of these was the relationships he shared with those around him and the stories that these connections told. For me, part of the poignancy of the post-resurrection narratives is the continuity of relationships. And that's an important reminder for us this morning of God's faithfulness in his relationship with us. So as we consider God's faithfulness to us, let's take just a few moments for reflection. Mm-hmm. just like some of Taylor Swift's songs can be earworms that you wish weren't there. I wonder if you've heard something that you just can't shake. It happened to me a few weeks ago when I was speaking at St Andrew's Baptist. There was an impromptu question and after after the service and Steve Holmes, who some of you may know, said something that has stuck with me since. He observed that even post-resurrection, Jesus's scars remained. Now, maybe it's my own ignorance, but i never really thought about the significance of that beyond it being a confirmation that the person who was before the disciples was in fact the very same Jesus. But what struck me this time around was how we tend to expect that the resurrection life will remove all marks of suffering. We take comfort in reminding ourselves of the expected time of no more tears or death. We long for the time that our infirmities are taken away. And while on one hand I hold to this conviction, on the other hand, I just have this earworm in my head that says the scars remained. There is some discontinuity in Jesus's post-resurrection body, seemingly being able to circumvent locked doors and yet there's also the continuity of his memory and the physical scars of the events of those recent days. Of course we might argue that Jesus' post-resurrection body is a special case. Perhaps we won't have an identical experience and Christ's resurrection body was some interim state before he returned to the Father. But even then I feel the tension persists Christ is the archetype for the resurrection of all Christ followers. And yet his scars remained. And my wonder goes broader than just what our resurrection life will be like. We read in Romans 8 that the whole of creation is awaiting renewal alongside humans. And just as Christ is the archetype for the resurrection life, he is also the forerunner of all resurrected life, humans and beyond. So I wonder, what will the resurrection life be like for the rest of creation? I have a hope that what is broken in this world, its systems and its structures, will be revitalized. But what I'm less sure about is what scars might remain. The disciples in the passage that we read were invited to test the holes in Jesus's hands, as if they served as a clear reminder of the costly damage of a broken system. Though some of this must remain speculative, in the same way, I wonder if creation will still bear the scars of the damage inflicted upon it. One way we might take this reflection further is what it means for our ideas of perfection. Maybe instead of something that is unblemished, we begin to appreciate beauty despite so-called imperfections. Maybe part of beauty lies in perceiving the struggle and recognizing that we've come through it. Maybe rather than expecting God to paper over all our cracks and begin afresh, we come to appreciate what God is doing despite our flaws. But turning back to my wonder about the impact upon creation, I wonder what will become of the deforestation of the Amazon or the drought ravaged countries in Africa, or the diminishing polar ice caps, or the heavily mined areas of the Western world, I wonder if these scars will remain in the resurrected life of creation. At the moment, if I'm honest, I just don't know. But as if we needed yet another reason to care for creation, then it's a sobering thought that that our neglect of creation might become the planet's persisting scars. John and Hank Green are writers, with John Green best known for books such as The Fault in Our Stars. Before writing, however, John Green worked as a hospital chaplain. And a quote attributed to John, although actually I found out it originated with Hank, really stood out to me. He wrote this. It's very sad to me that some people are intent on leaving their mark on the world, that they don't care if that mark is a scar. He channels this quote in a central theme that runs through the Faulkner scars with Augustus penning an emotive letter about a girl named Hazel to another character named here only as Van Houten. In the letter, Augustus writes, almost everyone is obsessed with leaving a mark upon the world, but Van Houten, the marks humans leave are too often scars. You build a hideous mini mall or start a coup or try to become a rock star and you think, they'll remember me now. But they don't remember you and all you leave behind are more scars. Your coup becomes a dictatorship. Your mini mall becomes a lesion. Hazel is different. She walks lightly upon the earth. People will say it's sad that she leaves a lesser scar, that fewer remember her, that she was loved deeply, but not widely. But it's not sad Van Houten. It's triumphant. It's heroic. Isn't that the real heroism? Like the doctors say, first, do no harm. Perhaps I don't need to say much more here than that. Tread lightly and do no harm. To me, it's an almost haunting thought that follows me around. So when I think about the persistence of Jesus' scars, I wonder to myself, am I treading carefully through life? And in my use of creation, so that I'm not creating scars in this life or ones that will persist in the fullness of the resurrection life. I'll leave that with you to consider a little further while we have another short time of reflection. <laughs> began this morning with Taylor Swift's line, everything has changed. And like I observed, we tend to say that about Easter, everything has changed. And yet I find it a real struggle to describe quite what that everything is. Again, like I mentioned earlier, the disciples still got up the next day and went about their days, confused maybe, but still they had to do all the normal things. The Roman Empire didn't suddenly collapse and the world wasn't suddenly healed of all its problems. In fact, for most people, especially those outside of Jerusalem, the world probably looked and felt very much the same on Easter Friday as it did on Easter Sunday. But we believe everything had changed. Yet it's not quite as easy to say that everything had changed and so disregard anything that had come before. Not only does the cross really only make sense when placed within the narrative of Christ's life, it also only makes sense when placed within the story of God from creation to cross and beyond. The cross and resurrection wasn't just an isolated event outside of any wider narrative. If you've seen the film, A Beautiful Mind, you'll understand something of the nature of this kind of central pivotal plot device. In A Beautiful Mind, Russell Crowe plays the brilliant real life mathematician, John Nash. In the first section of the film, Nash develops a friendship with a fellow student. And it's only halfway through the film that is revealed this fellow student is a figment of Nash's imagination. And suddenly the whole film is turned on its head. What had come before looks different, And what comes after only makes sense in light of this change. The story doesn't end, the characters stay the same and the plot continues, but it's one of those everything has changed moments. The cross therefore serves as a central and pivotal plot point, but does so in a way that continues a long established story and a story that continues to be told to this day. In terms of God's story, The cross and the resurrection are a pivotal moment in an ongoing narrative. But what changed that resurrection Sunday? Well, that's a question for a far longer discussion, but let me wonder aloud at what I think was one of the outcomes of the resurrection. If we continue with our story metaphor, then we can say that the resurrection ended one chapter and began a new chapter. If we put that in biblical terms, we'd say the old age has passed away and the new one had begun. The resurrection inaugurated a new age of God's reign, and we, as a resurrection people, live in this new age. All that we do, all that we believe, the way we respond to events around us, are all coloured by being people of the resurrection. It changes everything that we believe. Furthermore, the resurrection was an invitation into the resurrection life. In effect, Jesus was saying, My life can be your life. My story can be your story. So what is it for us to live in this new age? It's many things, too many to describe this morning, but hopefully to end on a note of encouragement, I like Charles Matthew's description of it being a time of relaxed playfulness. Now it might seem hard in today's world to think of ourselves as living in the world with a relaxed playfulness. But I don't actually think Matthew's is being flippant. Rather, what he's describing is the confidence we have in the resurrection. We are reminded that God has accomplished what he set out to do. In Christ, the kingdom of God is now here, even if not fully completed. And as people of the resurrection, we can live in the world recognizing that we aren't responsible for bringing about the kingdom. God has already done that. But yet, as citizens of the kingdom, we have the responsibility to participate in the kingdom and live by the patterns of the king. In this new age, though it can sometimes feel like it, we are not fruitlessly toiling in the vain hope that we will achieve the kingdom. Rather, in this new age, we live with the confident knowledge that God has established his kingdom and we simply serve at the pleasure of the king. Whether it is recognition of God's faithfulness or a reminder to tread lightly or renewing our hope in God's purposes, the post-resurrection narratives profoundly shape our story as followers of Christ, the living God. And so everything really did change at the resurrection. The king is alive, the kingdom is safe, and the new age is here. It might have looked like the same world, and even today there is much that doesn't look like the kingdom. But sure enough, because of the resurrection, we can be sure everything has changed.
4: Now we bring our prayers for others and for ourselves. Let us pray. O God, our Father, we come before you once again, believing that as we come in sincerity, you will hear our prayers and in your wisdom respond as is fit for our situation. And although we have much in common with one another, each of us comes from our own individual context, our own circumstances. But we believe that you know us all together and you will speak to us that our needs will be met according to your will. Grant us the faith to trust you and the grace in living out our life, no matter what lies ahead. At the national level, we cannot fail to have been aware of the events of this past week following on the death of the Duke of Edinburgh. We give thanks for his life of service to Her Majesty and to the nation and the Commonwealth. We would pray that in some way the celebration of his life might draw us together within the family of nations, and that his legacy might be a continuing force for good. Also at the national level, we are conscious of impending elections for the Scottish Parliament and for local authorities elsewhere. Help us to wisely exercise our judgment as we cast our votes, and may all who are eventually elected act for the welfare of all the people and not merely along narrow party interests. And finally, at the national level, we pray for all who continue to face the challenges of the virus, not only medical staff, but all who risk the dangers of infection as they go about their daily duties. At this time, when some of the restrictions are being lifted, may we exercise our freedom with caution, but at the same time, take the opportunity to reconnect in person with family and friends after perhaps prolonged separation. In the international context, we are asked to pray today for the work of the BMS World Mission. BMS undertakes many initiatives, and today we would recall their work in enhancing the voice of marginalised women in their attempt to improve their own lives and those of their children. Similarly, we hold up the advocacy work of the VMS in Uganda, in Guinea and Thailand and Mozambique. Within the fellowship of the Baptist churches here in Scotland, our attention is drawn to the fellowship at Crookston Community Church in Glasgow, Crown Terrace in Aberdeen and Calduthal Christian Centre in Inverness. May each of these churches find blessing in their own particular context and be encouraged in the work and witness to the gospel. Returning to our own church community here at Hillhead, we pray today for Lena Toth, who recently brought us news of the tragic death through COVID of her friend Oksana. She was the deputy dean of the Ukrainian Evangelical Theological Seminary. Pray for her husband and two grown-up children in their very sad loss. Within the life and work of our own church at Hillhead, we remember today our own Zoom technical team, to whom indeed we owe a great debt that services continue as they have done. We pray also for Betty, Graham and all the family, Talash, Yang Yang, Antoinette and Spencer, Bayar and his family, and Christine Kling and Nicola and the family in Butte. Each of us have our own path to trade, our own concerns about health, about jobs, about income, about relationships with one another, and we would bring all these issues to you within the mystery of faith, whereby we can be assured that our trust will never be unfounded, our prayers unheard. For we know that you, our Father, loves each one of us as if we were the only one to love. Amen.
2: Blessing and benediction, I'm going to leave us with a few short words from Hebrews 13, verses 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the covenant, eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory